and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a chef on the podcast who shares his story of starting his career at age 13, why one of his restaurants has a pawn shop in the front, and the chopped basket ingredient he just can't seem to forget. He's a chef, restaurateur, owner of a rock music label, and longtime judge on Chopped. Let's welcome Chris Santos to the podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today for a number of reasons. But first and foremost, uh, we are both burger aficionados, as Uh, I understand it. Uh, You are always on the hunt for the best burger in New York City, the best burger in your travels. So I have to know which burger currently has your heart. I'm a I'm a I'm a deep diver. Um, I like (laughs) to go go to places that are, you know, been around for a really long time. I moved to Los Angeles a year ago after 28 years in New York City. And so LA, the LA area is really great for that because there's all all these out of the way places that have been around forever. I recently tried a place called Bill's um, here in LA. It's been open for 60 something years and and Bill is still on the grill um, (laughs) cooking the burgers on the same flat top that he opened the restaurant with. It's not even a restaurant, it's a little shack. He's in his 90s and he still goes to work every day. And he's still cooking the burgers. It's kind of a, a local treasure from what I've heard. So I finally went and checked it out and and the burgers were great. So that's my new favorite. What what style of burgers do you get at Bill's? Uh, it's like a smash burger. Very, yeah. very straightforward. You know, cheese or no cheese kind of thing. Bacon or no bacon. There's a right when, when you walk up, uh, the first sign that you see is, no, this isn't Burger King. You can't have it your own way. <laughs> Which I, I appreciate that. And I, I, I love a smash burger. That is definitely uh, my new favorite as yes. well. So we could talk burgers uh, all day long, but yep. we have so many things to chat about. You have obviously been in the game for quite some time, starting to work in a kitchen at age 13. Yep. Uh, what inspired this work ethic as a young teenager? You know, honestly, it, was, it wasn't it was work ethic at first. It was uh, a means to an end. I started high school when I was 13, and I, I noticed right off the bat that all the cool kids had cars or and or played in, in rock bands. And so <laughs> I came home and... and said to my mother that I needed to get a drum set and that I wanted a I wanted a car on my 16th birthday not a day later and she said well then I guess you better get a job <laughs> <laughs> so I got a job at a restaurant she helped with that and I uh, I was funny I was just telling the story the other day I think I was making a dollar 85 wow. an hour but it was under the table cash so I thought it was okay. the coolest thing <laughs> There's a chef that was hired a few weeks later after I started, and he just took me under his wing. And um, the first, by the way, the first night that I worked there, I suffered severe, really bad burn situation. My first night working there ever. And you'd think I would not go back to a restaurant after you know having a really bad first night, but but I went back. They hired a new chef, and he took me under his wing. And um, you know, by the time I was about sixteen or seventeen at the latest, I was you know I was a full fledged line cook working alongside grownups. And then I graduated high school and had been playing drums all this time and wanted to go be a rock star. And my mother again stepped in and said, you know, go to culinary school. It's only two years. You'll be done at 19 and then you'll have something to fall back on. Went to culinary school, loved it, graduated very high in my class, got a scholarship. They they asked me to come to you receive a scholarship and, and stay on for my bachelor's degree in hospitality management. I did that. 
So it was just kind of like, I kept trying to get out of it a little bit and I kept getting pulled back in. <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, you know, then I moved to New York out of culinary school and, you know, I, I grew up in a tiny little town in New England and I'd never seen anything culturally you know, as far as food goes as it was in New York City. I mean, you, you know, New York City, I, I went from this tiny little town with a couple thousand people to maybe, you know, the greatest restaurant city in the world. And so that was very inspiring. Day by day after that, it just became less of a job and more of a passion and career. At what point did it become that passion for you? A few years after I moved to New York, I took some time off and went to Europe and spent several months there and went to like 14 countries and 40 cities and you know, would spend time in kitchens, uh, but mostly would just eat. And the reverence for food in Europe took what I, what I was seeing in New York to an even other level. One thing back in the 90s, again, I'm dating myself, is I mean, this country has come so far in the last 20, 25 years culinarily all across the world, all across the country. But for a while, it was like, you know, it was like New York and it was San Francisco and it was New Orleans and finding, you know, a really amazing restaurant. Yes, there's amazing restaurants, but finding like your, your the local bistro on some side street, I never found them to be particularly inspiring, even in New York. Um, I loved all the great restaurants, but but was a little underwhelmed with, with some of the more neighborhoody restaurants. And when I went to Europe, I found that like it didn't matter where you were. You didn't even have to be in a restaurant. You could just be in a food market, a food hall. Just the, the care and attention that, um, that the European culture was the reverence for food. Um, I came away with that kind of an experience. And I brought that back with me and started opening my eyes and started realizing that it was here too. I just was looking in the wrong places. What kind of sparked, you know, that, that trip for you? I moved to New York with, you know, a couple hundred dollars in my pocket. And I had a job lined up, but it was, but I was not happy. I did not like it at all. So I got hired as a sous chef at a very busy restaurant called Time Cafe, which was very popular in New York City at the time. And within a year, the chef moved on to open his own restaurant and they offered me the executive chef position. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And, hmm. you know, we're talking about a restaurant that was doing, you know, five, 600 people covers for dinner, 700 brunches. Wow. But I took it and I learned on the job, made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure, but did well enough that I, I actually opened up two other locations for them. So I opened up a Time Cafe in the West Village and one on the Upper West Side. But all I did was work. And so all my, so my paychecks just went in the bank. By the time I had opened that second restaurant and was overseeing the three, I was already feeling a tiny little bit burnt. And I was like, you know, I have money in the bank for the first time in my life. And I want to I want to go learn some more. Um, and I thought the best way to do that was, was to travel. And that to this day is is the case. Uh, you know, I, I find that the best the best way to learn about about cooking and food and is 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 to travel. Do you still draw on, you know, those experiences now when you're, you know, coming up with new, you know, menu ideas and and food items for your for your restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. My menus tend to be multicultural and that's I think because of my world travels. I've been I've been lucky to to have traveled kind of far and wide and and I like being able to bring, you know, the things that I love back with me and sort of making them my own and making them approachable and fun. So yeah, I definitely I, I travel as much as I possibly can. And I know you've mentioned, you know, your schooling, your formal schooling at Johnson and Wales University, but you still consider yourself a self-taught chef. Why is that? It's no disrespect to culinary school. I mean, Johnson & Wales is, is a great school. I'm actually doing some work with them as we speak. And they, they offer an, a great education, but there's no substitute for real world restaurant experience, right? Um, the classroom is just a controlled environment. And no matter how you try to replicate it, you know, what, what Johnson & Wales or, or, or culinary schools in general, I think do best is they teach you the basics. They teach you the mother sauces. They teach you the knife cuts. They teach you technique. But they don't teach you that it's really hard to get the restaurant experience. And so a lot of, you know, young cooks, their path out of culinary school is 10 years working with master chefs, right? You know, working with a David Ballou or a Jean 
George or any number of, of chefs. Um, and that's a great path. And sometimes I wonder where I would be today if I took that path. But I didn't take that path. Instead, I went and, and got a job and got promoted really quickly and just figured it out, you know, and, and opened a restaurant after that, which closed. You know, I made a lot of mistakes there too. A lot of the knowledge that I have today and the success that I have today was predicated on a lot of mistakes I made in my 20s while I was self-teaching myself how to do this. What are some of those lessons that you learned? Don't open a restaurant in your 20s. <laughs> I opened a, a small 27C restaurant and it was great. I, I got some great reviews. I got my first New York Times review from Sam Sifton. It was a 25 and under review. So there was no stars attached. But if I have it to this day because it reads like a three or four star review. Um, it was really stellar. And that really got people's attention. The restaurant was busy, but I didn't know how to make money and I didn't know how to manage money. And um, it was just me and <clears throat> another cook in the kitchen who's been with me for now almost 30 years. He's my culinary assistant to this day. Some, but there are weeks where I couldn't pay him or pay myself. Like I just didn't know what I was doing. And and also, you know, all chefs, I think at the end of the day, if you ask them or most chefs will tell you that they want to open up their own place one day. My biggest piece of advice would be to make sure that you are overcapitalized because you can never underestimate how quickly you'll fly through money during an opening of a restaurant and those and those subsequent weeks while you're while you're getting your name out there. And if you don't have enough money to sustain you for at least six months, you're not going to make it. Most likely, that's a lesson that I've taught a lot of young chefs that have you know worked with me and have moved on and do their own thing is you know just make sure you have enough money because it's a very expensive endeavor. But once you're on the map, great things can come to you. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you are a great mentor for a lot of young chefs. Who are your mentors? Um, you know, I mean, I think I only really have one. He's my, he's, he's my restaurant partner. He's, his name is Rich Wolf. He, uh, he's the co-founder of Tao Group Hospitality. And so Tao Group Hospitality is, is the company that I am a partner in. We are one of the largest hospitality companies in the world now. We have um, over 70 restaurants and nightclubs across the United States and across five continents. We're opening like 12 new locations this year. I mean, we'll, we'll be a billion dollar hospitality company in the next year or two, a billion dollar company. It's, it's, it's unheard of. Rich Wolf was started Tau Group way back in the 90s. And he was actually the person who hired me and promoted me into my first executive chef job that we talked about a little earlier. But we became great friends. And he's about maybe 11 years older than me. And we're best friends to this day. But he's, you know, he has taught me uh, so many lessons. He's He's one of the wisest guys in the world, period, but especially when it comes to this restaurant business. He's just, he's meticulous. You know, his eye for detail is incredible. Now now that I design restaurants um, or, or, or part of the design process for the restaurants, I should say, um, a lot, everything I've learned about design is from him. And the devil is in the details and he really uh, instills that. And his, and, and his, there's no such thing as a customer in our restaurants. They're guests. Um, we're not allowed to use the, the, the C word. Everyone's a guest. <laughs> um, everyone is a guest. And that's, you know, that's something that he really like bleeds that, you know, that anyone that chooses us is is immediately family because especially in the cities that we operate, right? Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Chicago, New York, London, people have so much choice. And if they're choosing us for their night out, you know, we are grateful right from the minute that you get to the front door and, and you're our guest, not our customer. Yeah. I mean, that I think that's so important, you know, especially just making it a, a full experience for the guest, uh, not mm -hmm. the customer. What are those restaurants, Beauty in Essex, uh, locations, New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles? What is your favorite part about owning a restaurant and then kind of expanding it, opening more of them? My favorite part is the creative process. So I'm in the I'm right now in the development process for a new brand, a new restaurant. It's just fun getting creative and being able to create something from the ground up. I design logos and 
just that kind of stuff. Um, it's not just about the food. And then of course there's, there's the food development and that's really fun because I travel so much and because I'm, my position has changed over time, um, to where I have such big teams that, and several restaurants that I oversee that I don't really cook that much anymore. It's kind of funny. My Instagram handle is Santos cooks and I'm always laughing that it should be Santos does everything but cook. <laughs> um, but I do, but I mean, I do from time to time, but it's just hard to find the time. And typically when I'm in the restaurants, I'm running the kitchen and, and not actually cooking myself. So when I'm creating a new brand, like I'm currently doing, there's lots of test cooking that goes with that. And so I get to roll up my sleeves and get creative and get back to cooking, which is what it's all about. Do you miss it? Do you miss cooking? Yes, I miss it. Would I want to go back to being chef owner of one 27 seat restaurant again and get to cook every night? Or would I like to be uh, doing what I'm doing now? It's it's kind of a toss up, but yeah, I miss it. I think I think that it's just hard, man. It's just, it, it's we're, we're, we're very busy we have very busy restaurants and there's always a million things to do. You know, I'll schedule time, you know, where I'm all right on Thursday from 9am to 3pm, I'm shutting the phone off, I'm getting in the kitchen and I'm creating some new dishes for the menu. And then by the time Thursday rolls around, all those slots have been taken up by a phone call here, a phone call there, a meeting here, a Zoom there. Um, so it's, it's just hard to find the time. But yes, I do miss it. It seems like your restaurants all have something you know special about them. Where do you get that creative inspiration for, like you kind of described, these experiences that you're providing for your guests? Yeah, I mean it's that's the whole thing, right? Is people, we, you know, we we want to create a memorable experience. I, I at least, I can't speak for everybody, I guess, on the planet, but um, I think that people remember experiences more than they remember, you know, a specific dish or whatever. I think so. There's so much that goes into it. I mean, I think, and especially in these times, and and you know, there is so much competition. You need to you need to separate yourself from the pack. And I think the way we do it, and the way I do it is, you know, we create a really immersive experience from the time that you get to one of our venues. Um, you know, speaking from Beauty and Essex, you know, the, the entry there is a, an operational pawn shop where we sell tons of jewelry and, you know, antique Rolexes and guitars. And, and then you walk through that and, and you enter into this really grand space, you know, so right from the, right from the jump before you've had any other experience, you kind of have this sort of strange but interesting and fun experience. And then, you know, it's all about the, the whole package for us is, you know, I always say that even though I'm a chef, I think hospitality is is this much more, I'm holding my fingers slightly apart, this much more <laughs> important than great, great food because I am more likely, if I go to a restaurant and the food is okay, but the service is just amazing and I'm made to feel special and valued and treated really well, I'm more likely to go back to that restaurant than to go to a restaurant where the food is phenomenal, but you know, the server, I couldn't order, you know, I couldn't order a second drink or, you know, I, I, when it was time to leave, I couldn't find them to pay the bill or mm. just in general was ignored, um, which happens, right. And people get busy and it happens. But I think that, that, you know, that the hospitality has to come first. And then if you follow that up with, you know, very, very good food, and then on top of it, do it in these really big, ambitious jaw dropping spaces that are like really highly designed your home free what inspired the the pawn shop idea so the original beauty in essex is in, is in new york city on essex street i had a restaurant for 15 years called the stanton social around the corner you know essex street was a, is a little bit gritty was what was a little bit gritty when we opened it and so we wanted to have a transformative experience we didn't want people to just go from the kind of gritty street into this really opulent beautiful restaurant we wanted something that was kind of gritty, but also kind of glammy. And that's how this, this pawn shop, you know, first we were going to do like a bodega, like a, like a convenience store. And we were going to have like Beauty and Essex branded water and Beauty and Essex branded this and that. But that just didn't feel like, for lack of a better word, sexy enough because the restaurant itself is just so sleek. The pawn shop idea it just clicked with us when we were 
kind of racking our brains on what to do because we could we could have it be really glammy, which it is with all the jewelry that's for sale. Um, but it's also kind of gritty. It's got the, the, the all the guitars on the wall. And we didn't know if people were going to get it or respond to it, but it's been a huge hit. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, by the way, uh, Stanton Social was one of the first, I feel like that was one of the first restaurants I went to when I moved to the East Coast and I would come down from Connecticut, you know, to meet up with my friends in New York. And I remember uh, that experience just being really fun and unique. Um, and I, and I remember that the menu very, very much being like a, a social dining experience. Why is that particular structure important to you? Yeah. I mean, I have a cookbook. It's called Share. So it's kind of my whole ethos. You know, I come from it. I keep dating myself. I am in my 50s. You know, I come from a time and from a place geographically, Rhode Island, where there was no such thing as, you know, sharing a dinner. It was everyone would order their, you know, look at this menu and then order one appetizer or order an entree and order your own dessert kind of a thing. And while I was not the first person to do, you know, share plates and small plates, you know, I was definitely at the beginning of that when that trend started. Now it's kind of the norm. But when that trend first started, you know, I think I was one of the first chefs that was in it. And it always felt like, you know, chefs spend their whole life developing a style, developing a repertoire of dishes. And it would be and if, for, to only order, you know, your own thing and, and not try anything else. It felt like going to see your favorite band and um, them only playing three songs. Whereas if you do, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of a, a more um, family style oriented thing, you know, you can try eight, nine, 10 things. And that's before you even get to dessert. And I just felt like that was, you know, why wouldn't we want our guests to sample as much of the menu as we can? We're proud of every single item on that menu. Like why limit what, you know, why limit what you can have? So we try very hard to steer people into sharing. So I just felt like that, you know, it was, and also I think that it's just a much more convivial kind of experience when people are passing, you know, think about all the things, you know, think about the special holidays and those special moments in your, in your personal life at home, right? When you're at Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, that kind of thing. Um, Father's Day barbecue, like no one's sitting down and having their own appetizer and entree. Everyone is, <laughs> is joyfully passing around plates and, oh my God, you have to try this. This is so good. Did you try that yet? Like that's what I kind of wanted to bring is, is, is this sort of celebratory way of dining where you, you bring, we bring people together and we bring people together around food, but in a way that's a shared experience, you know, sharing dinner, sharing dishes while sharing stories to me. There's something that seems kind of romantic about that and still does. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely my favorite way to eat. Um, I I, I want to try a little bit of everything. Is there a specific meal that sticks out to you? You know, that was a shared meal that kind of inspired this whole way that you approach your menus. Yeah, for sure. So so Sam DeMarco is is a chef that's been around for a long, long time. He had a restaurant in New York City called First, which was on First Street and First Avenue. To me, that's my earliest experience with that kind of dining. And so he, to me, is. Some people say, oh, you're a trailblazer with the small plate stuff. And I'm like, no, it's not me, really. It's, it's Sam DeMarco. Um, and so, you know, several years before I opened Stanton Social, uh, he opened first. And Rich, my partner and mentor, we would go there to eat quite often. And, and we would start talking about, you know, if we ever open a restaurant together, it should be like this. It should be shared. And then we, a couple of years later, we, we actually did it. And how many, you know, ever restaurants later, here we are, um, and you're continuing to expand. Do you have other cities in mind you would like to expand to that you haven't had a restaurant in yet? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we right now we're in talks to do a bunch of things. Nothing is signed, sold, or delivered, but we are seriously considering opening a spot in London, which would be amazing. I love London. I love I love visiting, and I would love to have a restaurant there, um, if for no other reason. So I have to be there a lot. 
<laughs> That's a good reason. Um, do you do you have a favorite food city? Barcelona. It's very nostalgic for me because that was one of those places on that Europe journey that I took in, in the 90s that uh, really captured my heart was Barcelona and just the amazing tapas and the food is just so amazing. Do you often think about your own legacy when it comes to everything you're building right now? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if, if there's a legacy I'm proud of, Stan Social being open for 15 years is, was a, is a big one. Um, you know, any restaurant in New York has a 15-year run is doing something right. Um, mm-hmm. But I think my biggest legacy is that the team that I have around me, um, all the chefs that work with me, you know, have been with me for a really long time. You know, Timmy, like I said, has been with me for 30 years. I've got, you know, my chef de cuisine at Beauty and Essex in New York has been with me since 1998. My uh, my right hand, you know, executive chef Sarah Nelson has been with me for maybe nine or 10 years. And those that have moved on, I've done really, really well. So I think I'm, I've done a pretty good job of mentoring and or fostering, um, you know, that's the other side of it, right? Is fostering a place where people like to come come to work. You know, I always say, you know, happy cooks make better food. You're just not going to put your heart and soul in, into cooking if you are miserable where you're standing. You know, when I step down one day, I'll, th- those kitchens hopefully will continue to, you know, operate in a way where people really love. It's very, it's a very collaborative environment. It's a, it's um, all the chefs get involved in many changes and specials and things like that. And, and it's just um, people enjoy coming to work. Yeah. I mean, I think that that speaks for itself, right? You've had so many people um, stay with you for so long. You must be doing must be doing something right. Cooking and culinary, not your only interest or talent. I know you love boxing and not just as a spectator, but you actually get in the ring yourself. Where did that passion come from? Uh, the initial passion came from my grandfather when I was really young. Both my grandfathers were were fighters. And one of them really just kind of took me on his knee almost and had me start watching boxing. I think I remember the – I don't even remember. But 1978 was uh, like the first time being huddled around a TV watching a, a boxing event. But um, as years went by, I just really, really began to love it. I didn't actually walk into a gym until I was a bit older. But I've been taking it very seriously since – well, I, I took it very seriously from – 1996 to 2010 in Brooklyn, New York at a gym called Gleason's, which, you know, Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson trained there for, you know, as, as just a couple of references. And I did, I did a lot of, you know, high contact sparring with pro fighters, with amateur fighters that were training for like the Olympics and things like that. I had my ribs broken, the same rib actually broken twice in that, wow. rib, in that gym. Um, I broke a knuckle. Um, I was getting cortisone shots in both shoulders uh, for rotator cuff stuff. I also, was 170 pounds, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I no longer am. In 2010, I broke that second rib uh, just a couple of weeks before opening Beauty in Essex, and it really hampered me. And so I decided to take a little bit of a break, and I decided I was going to take six months or so off, and uh, and then go back. And then life happened, um, and I ended up not going back to the gym until 2020. So I took almost 10 years off, and in the process, I gained 80 pounds. And if you think about it, it's, that's a shocking amount of pounds, but 80 pounds over 10 years is eight pounds a year. That's less than a pound a month. That just mm-hmm. kind of crept up on me, you know? Yep, as um, it does. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And so I'm down 30 pounds since I've been back to the gym. I'm trying to get down another 30 by May. Um, I'm in serious training now because I'm getting married in May. And uh, Congratulations. I train now. Thank you. I train now at Wildcard Boxing Gym in 
Las Vegas. I'm being trained by Freddie Roach, who is one of the most famous yep. boxing trainers um, in the world. So I'm really fortunate to be working with him. So. What's a, yeah, what is that like? I mean, you just got to drop that there at the end. How, how is it working yeah. with Freddie Roach? Uh, um, it's hard because I'm in the pro gym. There's two gyms there. The downstairs gym is the pro gym. And so I'm the only non-pro fighter that works out in that gym. So I'm training alongside fighters that are training. Matter of fact, one of our fighters, Mark Rexoyo, is fighting in Atlantic City on Saturday night for a world championship. And I, he's one of my training partners. Um, so I'm in the meaning I'm in the gym at the same time that he is every day. And so, you know, you have to work hard. Otherwise, you're just in the way. So it's, it's good in that sense. You just you really have to work. It's hard. It's especially hard at my age, too. <laughs> Would but, you ever like actually like, you know, fight like, I don't know, like an amateur kind of fight? I think those Celebrity. days are behind me. I mean, <laughs> I think those days are behind me. I don't know. You never say never, right? I get enough action in the gym. I'm pretty satisfied with that. How involved are you in the in the wedding planning process? Very, actually. It's going to be a pretty amazing wedding. I, all I'll say is that it's um, it's an outdoor event, and I'm building a a full fledged carnival with rides and games what? that you can like play to win prizes, and there'll be sword swallowers, and there'll be you know. Imagine going to like a you know a carnival or a county fair kind of a thing. I'm basically building that. So we'll have that a, sounds incredible. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We'll have, we'll do all the traditional wedding stuff you know during the day, but when the sun goes down, we're all going we're all going out onto the uh, onto the pavilion to uh, to hang out at the carnival. So will there be uh, carnival food as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that is that the only wedding food, or is there you know like mm -hmm. a traditional dinner beforehand? Yeah, we're doing a very like like very traditional upfront. Um, and then we're kind of, kind of just, yeah, tear the roof off the place and go outside. And I've got, I mean, I've got some like real thrill rides too. I'm not just talking about <laughs> like a Ferris wheel. I'm talking about real deal stuff. That sounds absolutely incredible. And I'm sure, I'm sure the music will, will, will be great as well. Yes. We, we talked about your love of music. Uh, what's, what, what are the music plans or is that a surprise? Uh, that is a surprise, actually, because there are a couple of pretty well-known acts that are have not quite committed yet, but that I'm in talks with to perform. So, uh, well, looking forward to to seeing the the photos and the recap <laughs> from that. But uh, speaking you. of music, you you actually have your own music label, yeah. Blacklight Media. What was yeah. your vision for that label when you started it? You know, I'm a big rock and roll, like heavy metal dork, as I was when I was 13 when I wanted to get those drums. I still play drums. I actually just I'm actually in the I just started a band uh, at 50-something years old. Amazing. But, you know, I have a label so we can write songs, record them, and I can just put them out on my own label. So <laughs> why wouldn't I do it, you know? I just love music. It's a big hobby of mine, especially after a long day at work, is to come home and kind of do a deep dive. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, like if you go on like Apple Music, Spotify, uh, YouTube, you know, you can do this thing where, you know, type in a band that you like and then over – on the side there, it'll say, you know, listeners also listen to or, or listeners also liked. And what I like to do is I like to take that like, you know, 20, 30, 40 steps from the original artist I put in. And then before you know it, you're listening to bands that, you know, are really obscure. And mm -hmm. and I just started really loving these bands and, and wanting them to have more listeners, basically. I'm partners with uh, a guy named Brian Slagle. He is actually the guy that discovered Metallica and gave them their big break. So he's kind of a legend in 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 this world, and he's ha he has the um, the largest independent um, hard rock and heavy metal music label in the world, and they're celebrating their 40th year anniversary this year. And um, I started sending him bands, and then he started signing bands I was sending him. And after like the fourth or fifth band, he said, "This is ridiculous! Like we need to do a label." 
And I was, I, I said no at first because I, I don't have any time, but uh, they've been really great. They do a lot of the, they do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. You know, I get to just kind of find the bands that really excite me and part of the process of kind of getting them on board. But once they're on board, you know, my, my, my guys over at Metal Blade Records kind of handle everything else. So, so I'm able to, I'm able to juggle it. Although it is more work than it's time consuming, right? Because, you know, we have bands that have records coming out this year. And I'm a part of like, you know, they'll send us the record before it's like fully mastered for notes. And so you got to really listen to these songs and kind of really, you know, give really good, valid feedback. And that takes more than just one listen. So you got to find the time in the day to, with no distractions to sit and listen to music, which should be easy, but isn't. Coming up next, Chris gives us all the inside scoop on Chopped. Well, obviously, you've been a, a judge on Chopped since the very first season. Take us back to that very first day of filming. Do you remember what what that was like? What was going through your head at the time? 100%. I was in Las Vegas helping open a restaurant, and I got a call, and they offered me three episodes, which I think was like a tryout. Um, I had not done anything on Food Network before. I'd done you know, Good Morning America and all those morning shows, um, and I guess that's where they found me. But I went there, and I didn't. they didn't prep me really. Not, I shouldn't say they didn't prep me, but I, they, I didn't get a whole lot of information. And so when the first dish was put in front of me, I was sitting on the right side, and Amanda Freitag was in the middle. She picked me up, actually. She picked me up that morning, and we drove in together. She told me, you know, she, she told me a little bit about it. She had done some episodes, but I didn't even like, I was taking clues from her. So like if she picked up her fork, I, I, was, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can eat now. And I picked <laughs> up my fork, you know what I mean? And when she put it down and she was done eating, I was like, okay, I guess I'm done eating now too. Like totally just cheating off her homework. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, totally terrified. It definitely took me some time to find my footing, but I guess someone liked me because they, they asked me to come back. And now here I am 13 years later, I've, We've done, I don't know, 600 episodes, 700 episodes. Wow. I've probably done 200. I don't even know. Competed on the show five times. It's it's crazy. It's, it's unbelievable that it's been 13 years. It's incredible. After so many seasons, do you feel like you could kind of do it with your eyes closed now? You don't have to cheat off Amanda anymore? Or, or, or do you still kind of brace for the unexpected at times? Oh, you have to definitely always brace for the unexpected with Chopped. Um, <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons why the show is so successful is no two shows are alike. They, they do a great job casting really talented chefs that are interesting people with great stories to tell. But it really comes down to, you know, that basket is crazy equalizer and the clock is is really the, the public enemy number one, I think. And, you know, so there's always something, there's always something new to discuss. I mean, I remember I did some episodes maybe in August or September of last year, uh, a few months ago. And I just remembered one day even saying like, you know, off camera after we cut, like, God, this show is it's unbelievable. It never stops surprising us. It's fun. I, I, it's like the jeopardy of cooking shows. I hope, and I, and I hope we can go another 13 years. Is there a dish or contestant that sticks out to you over the years? Well, you never get, you never forget your first dish that gets you personally chopped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first time I competed on chopped, I, I had um, goat brains in the basket. Chicken feet uh, are hard. Um, I think I've judged two episodes and for some reason, no chef has ever thought to cut off the talons. Oof. Yeah, it's really rough to get through. Um, 
um, there's just been some fun stuff on set. There was a chef there who came, who returned uh, at least once or maybe twice, and him and I did not see eye to eye at all. His name is Bradley, and we're actually it's funny because we we actually became friendly offset. He just texted me maybe a week ago asking me when I was going to be in New York again so we could get a drink. But but if you go back and watch any of those three episodes, I mean we are going at it, and it's like. It's very clear that we do not like each other, um, <laughs> but but by the by the time you know it was all over with, we actually we're like the odd couple, but it uh, it worked and we're, and we're friendly. It's great. I'm always curious to know if, if there was a, ever a dish that actually made you physically ill. Not really. I mean, I will say that there are, there are certain things I just don't like to eat, but you have to eat them when mm-hmm. you're there. And so I remember. I guess my. The closest, it didn't make me sick, so this is not really the right answer. But again, you got to remember, we've been doing the show for 13 years. I did learn a lesson, and that is I never, ever, ever uh, drink on a school night anymore. Many, 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 many years ago, um, I did. I had a friend's birthday party, his 40th birthday party, and um, we all went out the night before, and it was, you know, it was a, it got out a little bit out of hand. It was a big party, lots of friends, you know, like I said, it was, it was a surprise party. Um, and she's my best friend. He's turning 40. And so, you know, many drinks were, were had. And so I didn't feel so great when I showed up on set the next day. And um, uni is something that I just don't like. Um, it's a it's a texture thing. It's mm-hmm. a, I'm the and, same way. Um, <laughs> I feel yeah. like I'm supposed to like it, but I don't. Right, exactly. Me too. Exactly. <laughs> but um, it was in the appetizer basket. So I had to eat four plates of it. Oh. Uh, with a really bad hangover. <laughs> um, so I learned I will never, ever drink again uh, the night before, before a taping ever, because I don't ever want to go through that again. That's that's good advice. Uh, yeah. We obviously have to talk about the new special, Chopped Casino Royale, which is yes. airing right now. So much fun. Um, how does this spin on the show kind of raise the stakes, so to speak? Oh, it's great. I mean, I actually wish that we could do it I hope it comes back, I guess is what I should say. Um, it's really exciting because it gives the – it's another potential pitfall, really, because you can trade your ing- an ingredient in for something actually worse, right? Um, and so we saw that in when we were taping these that, you know, some chefs were really lucky and were able to trade up really nicely and some people got an even worse ingredient. And so it's it's fun. I always, I always wish it was a – I almost wish it was just how we do chops from now. <laughs> <laughs> I um, mean, yeah, maybe it could be like, you know, some somewhat of a, a long-standing thing that, that comes yeah. back every every season. What, what are some of the most difficult ingredients you've seen uh, on that version of chop? Maybe something that somebody kind of rolled the dice and 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 got a worse uh, got a worse ingredient. Yeah, I think somebody God, I don't remember exactly, but I think somebody had I don't remember what the ingredient was that they had. But they traded in, I believe, and got Rocky Mountain oysters as a mm. substitute, um, which wasn't great. Um, and then there's, <laughs> there were thing, and then there were things that were they were. You know what? One of the ingredients they no one picked it, but it was underneath one of the cloches. They had water bugs, Ooh. like those big giant cockroaches in New York that mm-hmm. have wings and can fly. Yep, yep. <laughs> they had like they had like chocolate covered water bugs, Ooh. and I was like. I don't know, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about this. Um, luckily, no one, no one. Well, at least not on the days that I was there. I didn't judge all of them. Perhaps it, someone did pick it on a day I wasn't there. Um, but thankfully, I was able to avoid that one. And so were all the chefs. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a, a, a gambler or a risk taker? I am. I am a gambler. Actually, I gamble unboxing quite a bit. And when I'm, when I'm in Vegas, you can often find me at a roulette table after work. I love this whole concept. So would you, you would be one of the ones rolling the dice or, or not necessarily? 
Hundred percent, yes. 100%. <laughs> for long, for longtime Chopped fans, what is something that they would be surprised to know about the show or or this new format? I think uh, maybe it's not. I mean, people know this now, but you know, it, it's a tremendous undertaking. Um, this show, and it takes about twelve hours um, from beginning to end to to um, do one episode. And just like in my restaurants, actually, um, the food, you know, the 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 team behind Chopped has really created an amazing work experience for everyone. And so some of the camera operators have been with us since season one, which is just incredible. Um, and, you know, I've seen so many people start out as PAs, you know, getting getting the judge's coffee and that kind of thing, who graduated to being, you know, second, second assistant director. You know what I mean? Um, they really foster a... Uh, a culture of, you know, staying with the show, but also growing. And it's been amazing to see. So, and, you know, I think it, there's like, I don't know, maybe eight or nine cameras on set, but yeah, a lot of those, a lot of those folks have been with us for a really long time. So I think that's just an interesting thing. And, and people are always kind of shocked to find out how long it takes to do just the one episode, but there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely reflected on screen that it, it is, you know, kind of a big family. and You guys all enjoy yeah. working with each other. Um, this, this has been so much fun uh, chatting, getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, we are going to wrap things up with uh, some rapid fire questions. Okay. And then we have one final question for you that we ask okay. everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. So okay. rapid fire questions. Favorite boxing movie? Um, I'm not going to say Rocky. I'm going to say uh, Bleed for This with Miles Teller. He plays um, a boxer named Vinny Pazienza who is in real life, broke his neck severely and had to have one of those halo things inserted into his head. And they told him he would never fight again. And he actually came back and won a world championship. It's really uh-huh. an incredible story. Oh, well, I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, something you're anticipating in 2022. Just opening new restaurants, you know, hoping that this pandemic comes to an end and mm-hmm. people can really can, can really uh, go back to enjoying each other's company without you know all the stuff that's gone and i'm getting married so of course i'm anticipating yeah i know that's very exciting uh something you've had to google recently all right so last night i'm watching here i'm gonna date myself again i'm watching barney (laughs) miller which was a sitcom from the 70s and 80s and i just i was watching it it was on i was flipping through the channels last night and one of the characters um his suit gets ruined and he's talking about how I just bought this suit and it was $250. And so I immediately Googled, I always do this if I'm watching like an old movie or an old TV show, how much would $250 be today? I want to know exactly <laughs> how valuable that suit really was. Turns out it would be about $1,100. So okay. it was a pretty expensive suit. All right. But yeah, right. I, I kind of do that. It's weird. But I like that. I, I, do I like that. that. Yeah. Uh, favorite burger toppings? Oh, easy. Uh, American cheese always. Mm-hmm. Um, my girl, Alex, want to show will agree with me there. Uh, American cheese, crispy bacon, mustard, Mayonnaise, ketchup, the end. No, the end. I don't want lettuce. I don't want pickles. Tomatoes, okay. Song on repeat lately. I listen to so much music. I don't know that I can I can name just one, but I will say that I, you're not supposed to do this, but I picked up the Christmas record from Sia this year. And okay. I, I, I think I've stopped now, but for at least a week or two after Christmas, I was still listening to it because it's just so fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. A favorite cooking hack. Not really cooking, but I, I love guacamole. I make it all the time. And what I've um, and I've, I've I've told this story before, but microplane your onions um, when you make guacamole because what you can do is it, when you microplane the onion, it becomes more of like a pulp mm. that kind of that kind of like just dissolves into the guacamole. So you get that onion flavor, but you're not getting those chunks. I hate guacamole that have big chunks of onion because mm. if you get if you get a chip full with you know a big piece of onion, that's all you taste, right? Um, it's not balanced, but if you microplane the 
the onions and kind of fold them in, you get the flavor, but it's not over overpowering. I'm definitely trying that next time I make guacamole. Uh, next travel destination. Um, Italy, I think, is, okay. the, is, is, is what we're looking at, like the Amalfi Coast. What's an industry you don't work in, but that fascinates you? It's going to go back to, I mean, my three my three loves have always been food, boxing, and, and, and music. I'm always fascinated by boxing referees because it's such a very, you know, first of all, you, you're there first and foremost to protect the fighters from, you know, really getting hurt. But also there's all these rules that you need to know and you have to be in really great shape because you have to move around the ring, just like the boxers for sometimes 12 rounds. And I always, and they're always typically older gentlemen, they got to work their way up. And I always wonder like, why, why are you a referee? Like what attracted you to that? Because I think to myself, well, maybe that's something I could do when I retire from the world one day. Yeah. All right. We'll look out for that. Um, all right. One <laughs> final question. This is the one we ask everybody on Food Network Obsessed and everyone has a completely different answer. So what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. You can time travel, spend as much money as you want. Anyone can cook these meals for you. You could cook them. There's no rules. It's your day. We want to hear it. Breakfast is going to be really easy. It's going to be we're gonna go to France and okay. we're just gonna we're just gonna go to we're just gonna go get a like a freshly baked baguette and some mm. fresh squeezed orange juice and then just walk around the city munching on the baguette that's still warm um and that's that's the breakfast for sure Love it. lunch has to be Spain Barcelona for tapas and cheese and cured meats that's that's a definite dinner would be street food in Southeast Asia maybe Thailand or Vietnam and then dessert would be my mother's chocolate cream pie that sounds like a, a great a great day, and uh, it's been a great chat. Um, <laughs> listening to all of your stories, truly, truly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking the time, and look forward to seeing you on Chop for many more years to come. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you. I so enjoyed catching up with Chris, hearing his passion for all of his projects, and I'm definitely trying that guacamole trick. Be sure to catch him on the next episode of Chopped Casino Royale on Food Network, Tuesday, January 25th at 9, 8 central. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 